Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 183. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my temporary co-host, Edward Gonzalez-Tennant. Today we talk about what Ed's been up to lately and where he's going next fall. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. And as we've been talking about leading up to, well, this episode for the last probably month, month and a half, Paul is on a field project in Saudi Arabia. I haven't heard from him in a little while, but that's okay. He's very busy out there and internet service is at a premium. (laughs) So I don't expect to hear from him. So that's not out of the ordinary there. And we're definitely going to catch up with him when he gets back to find out how the project went and and anything he learned and, and stuff that he did out there. So looking forward to that. In the meantime, for the next few episodes, we are bringing on someone who was a guest all the way back in episode 104. So go back and listen to that. We'll put it in the show notes. But let me welcome to the show as a a temporary co-host for the next few episodes, Edward Gonzalez-Tennant. Ed, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fantastic. So why don't you just give us a our, our audience a little bit of a recap on on who you are and, and what you're doing with your life as an archaeologist <laughs> in, in short. Well, I'm I'm wasting my life as an no, I'm kidding. Um so uh, life is in ruins. But there you go, right? A classic, a zinger. So yeah, I'm Ed Gonzalez Tennant, currently a lecturer at the University of Central Florida, but I'm moving this summer to become an assistant professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. So mm. I'm a historical archaeologist and I try to with my my teaching and my research and mentoring and so forth, I try to keep a foot in in kind of both the academic world, but also the CRM slash contract archaeology world. So a lot of what I've been doing lately is working with my graduate students on a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service and specifically the Ocala National Forest here in Central Florida. And so that involves a mix of projects. It's great for students. They're learning how to you know, work with a, an agency that's tasked with Section 110 compliance type stuff in one of the largest mm-hmm. in well, actually the largest forest in the southern U.S. So they're getting to do everything from classic phase one sort of stuff to help them with timber sales to National Register nominations of CCC era camps to, you know, full on excavations at other historic sites. Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. What kind of sites are you guys finding down there? And, you know, before you answer that, I do want to not gloss over the fact that, you know, for me, when I first went to Florida, I, I, you know, had no idea what Florida even looked like, but I wouldn't have guessed there were national forests down in Florida. So, you know, to, to let everybody else out there that doesn't know, yes, Florida has forests and they're national forests sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but along those lines, what, yeah, what kind of sites were you finding? All sorts of sites. You know, yeah. this is the third year of our partnership and we are, you know, I'm talking with 
the Forest Service folks to see how this might continue, you know, after I've made my move. But, you know, the opportunity here, we, we started the partnership during COVID in 2020. So it became, in a lot of ways, the only avenue for students at my institution to get any kind of field work. It was local, it was outside, we were able to be safe and so forth. So over those three years now, we've looked at, you know, prehistoric sites. We've identified a few either, you know, really through our our phase one work and, and internships for students. And we've looked at a variety of historic sites. Obviously, that's where my interests lean. But, you know, we found some mm-hmm. some cool sites and all of my grad students, you know, I sort of cycle undergrads into grad students and the partnership allows me to compensate students in various ways, which I think is important. So we've yeah. looked at, you know, everything from archaic sites right up to 20th century historic homesteading sites. So what we've Mm -hmm. been working on the last, we do a field school each summer. So the last two years, we've looked at this area called Pat's Island. And this is really exciting. It's been our primary focus, but not our only one. I've had a previous MA student use LIDAR, an open source software to identify previously unrecorded mound sites. This is the St. John's, right? So lots of mound sites, some of the earliest in Florida and really in the country by extension. And so we've, uh, we've done that work. We've looked at Pat's Island, which has a host of homestead sites, including I'm sort of, uh, I'm like uh, building up to this because I think it's so cool. So uh, (laughs) if anybody's familiar with uh, the yearling and Marjorie Keenan Rawlings, Hmm. right, Pulitzer Prize winning book that was turned into an MGM movie starring Gregory Peck. We're digging the homestead where Rawlings interviewed an elderly gentleman that became the basis for that book. So we're literally digging this location where, you know, we have this famous piece of literature that that accurately describes in a lot of ways the areas we're walking around and doing work in. It's also the area that when MGM returned in the late 30s and then after World War II in the 40s to film the adaptation, they rehabilitated the same site. So we're, we're kind of doing this double or triple duty. We're looking at 19th century Florida. 20th century mm-hmm. homesteads, also like golden age of Hollywood, all wrapped up in that site. And then we're doing a bunch of work, like I mentioned before, with the CCC. There are sites like that throughout the forest. So from Juniper Springs to Silver Glen Springs, we have these cabins, water mills, and so forth that are all there in great condition. And yeah. you know, other graduate students are working on documenting them using 3D scanning and photogrammetry but also getting them uh, nominated and hopefully listed on the National Register. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. And it's really cool. With this being the Archaeotech podcast, I'm going to focus on some of the tech aspects that you mentioned. You mentioned you had students working with LIDAR. Are you guys working with LIDAR imagery that's already been collected? Or are you collecting LIDAR imagery, say, through drones or anything like that, which I can't imagine the expense of that. So I think I know the answer. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, here in Florida and, you know, Florida is basically all coastal. And so we have, depending where you're at in the state, we have good LIDAR uh, going back Mm -hmm. 20 years. Now, the whole state within the next year or two, they they flew a series of statewide LIDAR flights in, I want to say, 2018, 2019. They're still processing Mm -hmm. that data. So for most of the state, it's not out yet. But in other words, yeah, we're using basically a state-provided LIDAR data that's freely available 
And then, of course, we're processing it with a variety of open source uh, software. And the student who actually worked on that is named Taylor Kalor. He now is the archaeologist at Talladega in Alabama with the Forest Service. Oh, cool. Yeah, there you go. I, I just wonder why Florida is putting a lot of resources into, you know, this imagery of the state. Is it because they know they're going to be completely underwater in the next like 50 years or is there some other reason? <laughs> uh, I think I think the whole state 50 years. Yeah, I think many parts 50 years would be very, very hopeful. I mean, I'm working yeah. in other, you yeah. know, other capacities elsewhere and areas that a decade ago, 20 years ago, you know, tides came and went today, those tides are coming three or four feet over where they normally do. And, you know, they're being exacerbated by spring tides and king tides, but tides are just higher. And Mm. a lot of the state is not, I'm not sure. Everybody knows something's happening. Yeah. The degree to which communities have to prepare for this. And, you know, obviously I'm on the heritage side of that, you know, is really, I think a mixed bag. I think partly because we, I, my hunch is we're not prepared uh, for how quickly the sea is going to rise in places like Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. and I don't I'd be all doom and gloom, <laughs> but, you know, we still have people who think it's not happening. So exactly. That's the that's the big problem. So, you know, I'm just wondering, too, what other sorts of. I guess, modern technologies are you exposing the students to? Are you guys using any sort of digital recording methods in the field? Not just like GPSs and things like that, but, you know, narrative and narrative data and stuff like that. And anything else, uh, drones, drone work, anything like that that you guys are doing? I don't have any of my students working with uh, various communities yet. Mm -hmm. There there could be work for that, I think. Particularly, you know, there's uh, associations that keep up the yearling trail. Sure. There are African-American heritage sites in the forest. You know, this is this is one of those things. The forest itself is four hundred and twenty thousand acres. It's it's Mm -hmm. enormous. And my position now, I'm a lecturer. So my primary responsibility is supposed to be teaching. And I've tried to kind of make this all about that. But, yeah, it's 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 tricky to, you know, I think the goal for me speaking with my students, particularly the graduate students, the goal for me is to give them, you know, sort of the, the edge, right? Like um, with LIDAR yeah. and open source, um, you know, that's that's an that's an edge that a lot of agencies, you know, particularly in places where you have access to freely available LIDAR, that's a huge management boon. So what we're trying to do is kind of balance this like cool exploration of new tech or newish tech with how does that exploration actually serve the interests of my students, particularly most of my students? In fact, I think all of my graduate students currently, particularly the ones working in the force, they don't have an interest in becoming an academic or anything uh, foolish like that. (laughs) But, you know, they want to work in CRM. They want to work in state or federal agencies. They want to, you know, sort of, quote unquote, do archaeology in a very real sense. So we're focused on you know, exploring tools that let them explore sites that they're interested in, histories they're interested in, but also technologies that, you know, are in demand and skills that are, you know, really transferable. I mean, obviously, I want all my students to become archaeologists because that's their goal. But, you know, knowing uh, GIS and these other approaches, other technologies means that, you know, they have sort of a backup set of skills that if they, you know, quote unquote, have to get a job doing something else they're I think they're well positioned to do it. So Mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of work with open source GIS, like QGIS, 
We're nice. doing a lot of work with photogrammetry, both open source and, and paid software. There's so many different kinds of photogrammetry programs out there now. Yeah. I'm much more interested in getting them to know kind of right the methodology behind how do you collect good photos or even videos. I'm using videos now actually to, to create my models in photogrammetry. Nice. So those are the things, you know, we're not doing too much drone work simply because in Florida and I think a lot of states, the legislation, particularly the state level legislation about what drones, particularly what companies are allowed to be used by academic researchers is very much in flux, right? Like I think a lot of us mm -hmm. use DJ, DJI, but here in Florida and I think other states, we've now been given a list of drones we're quote unquote allowed to use. And although we're still yeah. in this kind of gray area where you're allowed to use those drones, I want to say starting next year, like Florida-based researchers, people employed by the state aren't allowed to use like DJI specifically and a few other brands. So it's it's throwing some monkey wrenches in a lot of people's workflows who work locally and even internationally because you're from Florida, right? You're, you, you're <laughs> not allowed to use monies to buy those those drones anymore. So yeah, we're staying away from that because I think partly we want to stay, you know, we want to we want to be legal, but also... Mm -hmm. We don't know what I mean, I think the face, particularly as academics, the face of what is or is not allowed in the next year or two is going to change. Obviously, I still use Agisoft for photogrammetry. State after state is now because it's Russian owned, uh, banning the use of that right. software. So, yeah. Right. All right. Well, I definitely have some questions following on with some of that commentary. Let's talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 183. And I'm here with our new temporary co-host, Ed Gonzalez-Tennant. <laughs> Ed, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about in relation to the last segment and you as an, as an instructor, especially of field school students, grad students, people like that. One of the things that, that really strikes me, especially doing, you know, almost 200 episodes of the Architect podcast, I've worked with WildNote for the last few years. I worked with Codify. I've worked with people doing app development. Obviously, I'm very pro getting people to do these techie type things, you know, whether it's using drones or digital site recording, you know, or whatever the case may be. But in my experience trying to sell that to companies, one of the problems I encounter is people just having the inability to actually see 
these technological solutions for what they are, right? They tend to see almost any high-tech solution, whether it's even from GIS, even though that's more common these days, obviously, to, to drones, to you know tablet recording or smartphone recording, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're using, stuff like that. They have a hard time seeing those. And I got a question related to when you're talking to these students about these technology, you got them using LiDAR data, you're teaching them QGIS. Do you think they're becoming more tech minded, so to speak, which means, you know, they, they look at a solution and they think, oh, OK, I can I can see the 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 technological ways that we can do this. Not that you always need to use some sort of high tech solution. Right. But that it's part of their just way of thinking in their toolbox. Like when somebody learns a new language, when you start thinking in that language, it becomes a little bit easier. But if you've got to translate every time, it's much more difficult. And that's the problem I've noticed even with young people. Yes, they know these things exist, but they still don't just inherently think that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the I think this is a bigger conversation. It's a cross generational conversation in a lot of ways. Right. So, you know, there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about certain generations, whether that's millennials or Gen Z. You know, millennials are now the ones who live in places where they can afford homes, are homeowners and stuff. You know, right. Gen Z are like our college age students now. And there's this idea that they're all digital natives. And I, you know, I would certainly think that they're sort of social media natives, (laughs) right? Meme natives, if you will. But yeah, getting to think, you know, that's sort of my approach, you know, and I think like, you know, GIS is a really good example. All of the students I work with, people I mentor, I'm a huge advocate for QGIS open source. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the, the ethos of open source, the political commitment, Hey, this is messed up in the software. Can somebody fix it? Da, 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 da. It's fixed, and a new a new port or or <laughs> version is out. That's great. You know, you get you get a developer community that's really invested in stuff. However, you're not going to probably want to go into a CRM job or a government job in archaeology or heritage more broadly, and not also be conversant in ArcGIS. And so, you know, most right. of our GIS certificates and programs are only teaching our GIS and that's good. And, you know, we, we need that sort of experience. And I think, you know, with, with my students, there's a lot of value in being able to tell an employer, a potential client, you know, Mm -hmm. if you need X, Y, or Z done, we can do it. I mean, certainly when I worked, you know, in CRM, you know, some of the extensions for ArcGIS, for instance, that would allow you to work with LiDAR data can be prohibitively expensive for companies, large or small. So being able to introduce open source solutions into that, you know, workflow. So you're you're basically kind of really shifting between those different uh, <laughs> software ecosystems. I think, you know, the goal there is to get people thinking in, you know, this maybe this will sound corporate speak, solutions oriented. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you understand what's possible with different software, different technical tools, I really think there's sort of this ethos of experimentation. And anybody who's taught any of these things, the, the most important lesson we have to teach is, you know, don't be afraid to F it up. Yeah. Um, in fact, you're not going to be technically savvy until you've effed it up a million times. <laughs> so right. certainly with, with my approach to all of these things, being able to say, look, we can bring these 
tools, we can bring these software to bear on these issues, you know, in terms of like working with clients and so forth. Uh, I think one of the benefits there is cost reduction, right? Like if your overhead mm-hmm. for software is far less, then you can think about, you know, either cutting back the overall cost or you can put some yeah. of that into into people. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful solution because, you know, you've got clients who are now seeing products that maybe they didn't fully anticipate that go kind of above and beyond for the same or even less money. But you also have like employees or researchers or, or whatever who are kind of excited because they get to kind of push these envelopes. So, I mean, we can talk about like, how do you sell certain digital technologies to various clients? I mean, whether that's predictive modeling with federal agencies (laughs) or public outreach, you know, for state sponsored CRM projects, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, a lot of potential out there. I think what's maybe tragic is we don't necessarily have, the academic researchers, I mean, we do have some, but we don't have enough who are like, okay, how can I explore these tools to make the next generation of students, uh, heritage practitioners, conversant, not just in what buttons to push in software X, but, you know, I would say this is a much deeper issue. This is about methodology, not technique, mm-hmm. you know, and once students are comfortable effing it up and understand what the methodology is then I think it's a lot easier for them to experiment. Right, right. I mean, that's so good to think that way, right? And and to get them not only exposed, but you're right, to, to learn to be, you know, solutions people. One of the software companies I work with, there's an actual role called solutions engineer. And I'm like, we should all be solutions engineers, really, you know, when it comes down mm-hmm. to trying to figure out, you know, how to actually get something done and, and knowing all those tools. And, and that's where... Working with WildNote specifically, uh, because that's where I really did sales. The other stuff I was doing more development, but where I was more in in partially in development and partially in sales. One of the things I heard so many times from archaeologists of all ages was, you know, oh, technology hates me or computers hate me or, you know, stuff like that. It was always that, you know, that anthropomorphizing the thing and saying it hates me, not I don't understand it. It hates me. (laughs) And it's just like when you start thinking that way you start thinking everything you're going to do is going to be wrong and there is no proper solution. And I'm just going to default back to pen and paper in the case of something like wild note or, you know, what have you, something that, you know, and I see these potential inefficiencies that people are experiencing just because they had a negative experience with something one time and then never went back, you know, never, never thought, well, let me see if it's evolved since I tried it last, or let me see if I can understand it better and, and keep going. And to me, that's like one of the most important things people like you are teaching the next generation, because yes, you have to teach them about QJS and LIDAR and GPR and drones and all that stuff and just make them aware of these things. But it's also re- reteaching their brains how to think about this stuff and, and how to solutionize to use another corporate term. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, that really resonates, right? I mean, yeah. I think educators, particularly those of us who consider ourselves digital archaeologists, digital heritage people, you know, whatever, I think we're it's a very exciting time. And you're seeing that Mm -hmm. with some of the books, edited volumes, publications that are coming out. I mean, there's there's a a lot of solutions out there. You know, I I sort of think, you know, I was in band in high school. Probably uh, some of the listeners can uh, 
can, me too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> can, uh, can commiserate or, uh, identify with that. I mean, you know, and it's our band director in high school was, you know, very much like it's a poor musician who blames their instrument. And I don't, you know, right. yeah, you know, computers are finicky things. And, you know, I think getting people into that kind of, I mean, this is where, I wish we had more archaeologists who are like in the maker scene, you know, or vice mm-hmm. versa, I suppose, you know, like that, that mentality, like I'm going to mess this up, but you know what? That's okay. I mean, yes, on a, <laughs> on a job where you've got a tight turnaround, that's not the time to mess it up. But, <laughs> you know, for students, especially your college years, whether it's undergrad or graduate school, that's the time to mess it up. I mean, first of yeah. all, most of your professors, they have no clue what you're doing if you're doing something technological. <laughs> I mean, right. I, you know, where I went, I, I did my graduate school at the University of Florida. I'm in some ways mm-hmm. very grateful that I went there or I did some of it there. I did some of it at Michigan Tech. Michigan Tech was very much like we're going to teach you how to do this stuff. Right. University yeah. of Florida was uh, nobody knew what I was doing technical wise. Right. I, I I was teaching my second year there, teaching GIS courses. So I think, you know, there's there's a huge opening right now for academics, for educators to be doing this like, hey, kids, not to, you know, infantilize <laughs> students, but hey, students, whatever, mess it up, like experiment, go out there. You know how many programs? Mm-hmm. I mean, even now we can talk about open source hardware. There's so much open source hardware coming online from GNSS yeah. receivers to probably GPR and other stuff. You know, it's we're probably right now in 2022, we're within a year or two where like field tech wise, archaeology could potentially mount, you know, like an entire field kit made of open source tools, both hardware and software. Or, you know, I mean, if, you know, I mean, I map with open source stuff, you know, I think it's and that's not to say that that's the only solution because it's not because anybody who's worked solely with open source has hit that wall where it's like, oh, son of a (laughs) this doesn't work. (laughs) What do I do? But that's where I think, you know, really empowering generations of people to be like, okay, well, this doesn't work. Time to experiment. And yeah. You know, if it's like the the band director, you know, only a, uh, it's a poor musician to blame his instrument. I guess the other side of that would be right. The perfect is the enemy of good, right? I mean, mm-hmm. most of us are in situations where we need to produce something in a timely manner that does X, Y, or Z. You know, it's compliance yeah. work or, or whatever. And being in a position where we're like, hey, I I've satisfied this need, and maybe I've done it in a creative way. But I think for a lot of people, being able to do it in a creative way is actually probably going to increase their job satisfaction <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways that, you know, maybe, you know, academics, we can do more to teach that. But, you know, on the flip side, uh, CRM practitioners and companies can also kind of embrace that maker mentality, if you will. Indeed. Yeah. Archaeology isn't just about... It's not just about cultures these days and and digging and and surveying and and doing all that stuff in order to properly answer those questions and really find out, you know, about the people that we're trying to serve. You, you need the right tools at your disposal and, and modern tools are, you know, really helping out with that. So I think with that, we'll take a break and come back on the other side and, and wrap up this discussion back in a minute. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www.arcpodnet.com motion. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 183. So, Ed, you're moving on this summer. What kinds of courses do you plan to teach at your new position? Okay, so that's cool, right? <laughs> be in a uh, tenure track position, which is nice. Yeah. I will also be working in a department where public outreach, public engagement is, is really like, I mean, g- like l- literally and genuinely a cornerstone of everything they do. So, this, I feel strange saying this is a smaller school. I'm coming from the University of Central Florida, which is like 65, 70,000 students. Jeez. Yeah. It's a monstrosity. <laughs> yeah. It's a bureaucratic monster, like all universities, but it's unique because of its size. It's, the lar- it's one of the largest universities in the country. So, Sounds like it. Yeah. UTRGV, only 30 something thousand students. <laughs> But, you know, so you're not going you're not going to a smaller school. You're going to like a more normal sized school. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to a normal school. <laughs> right. Uh, it just feels smaller. <laughs> it just feels smaller. Yeah. Like I, I won't have to teach, you know, 2000 person sections of intro to X. I, no, I've not had to do that here. But um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, probably a number of courses, though, you know, I'm getting to retool uh, a digital heritage course. Okay. So I've taught a, a, a variant of that here. It's a mixed undergrad graduate course called Digital Anthropology, but I'm, I'm specifically making it digital heritage. Mm-hmm. Be mixed grad undergrad at UTRGV as well. And basically, it sort of marries specific digital archaeology, digital heritage tools with this public outreach commitment. So we're going to look at things like open source GIS, particularly mm-hmm. as it can be used to create interactive maps that are hosted online. So, nice. you know, that's a great way to share information with people. It's also going to explore photogrammetry and students get an option of software to use from open source to paid options. And then also using things like Blender, open source 3D modeling programs to really tweak and improve the look of the, the models that come out of uh, photogrammetry. Yeah. And then there'll be some 
digital storytelling stuff, right? So we'll explore really kind of how do you take all this information and produce a product that, you know, you could put on YouTube or Vimeo and or, right, like work with a museum and create a welcome video or a history of X community type video, you know, four to five minute. These are not full documentaries. These are digital storytelling things, right? Four yeah. or five minute sort of information dumps that are engaging because they have mapping and 3D models and other stuff that are helping to tell these stories. So that's the course I'm most excited to teach. I love teaching that course. I've done it now a few years and sort of really walking students through this idea of pick a topic, find creative ways of documenting that heritage, and then find creative ways of sharing that heritage with the public. You know, I've heard, I can't confirm this, but that another good way of sharing information with the public related to anthropology and archaeology is podcasting. I'm just saying, <laughs> it's a good way. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll don't I, discount it. <laughs> but no, no, I mean, I would, I mean, obviously, I'm very grateful that, that you've reached out and you're letting me co host for uh, these few weeks. I mean, I, I'm a huge podcasting fan. I've never done it myself, um, mm -hmm. you know, but the, the, the tools to do this seem uh, readily available. <laughs> I'm, they, I'm sitting in my, my home doing this, right? So, you know, I won't lie being the – actually, I'm really bad at self-promotion. I'd love to pretend I'm really good at it, but I'm not, <laughs> except in my classes, right? Like, hey, look at this weird, stupid thing I did, kids. Oh, that's weirdly <laughs> right. stupid. Thanks, Dr. GT. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not committed to them having to use a visual format. I mean, if 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 students want to explore, I mean, obviously, podcasting, it's one of those things. It's like, oh, there, you know, five years ago, 10 years. Oh, there's so many a year ago. Oh, there's yeah. so many. And yet it's like we still need more. Right. Like yeah, we haven't absolutely. hit the wall. <laughs> well, and, and the interesting thing, not to make this an ad for, you know, podcasting, but the, one of the interesting things that people don't seem to really understand about podcasting is it doesn't necessarily need to be this episodic weekly thing that you do for years, right? I mean, a, a lot of people do see podcasting that way. But as an example, you can create one-off series, like short-run series that can just be depending on where you put them, again, they don't even have to be available on, say, popular podcasting platforms. They can simply just be audio files that you have in a place which which can be more accessible to certain people, you know, if you're trying to get this information out. Because video is great and all, but video is difficult to watch while you're driving, for example, right? It's difficult to watch while you're doing other things, but a lot of people will well, take the safely, audio format. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. I just I didn't say it was impossible. <laughs> it's just difficult. Yeah. But uh, like, for example, one of the hosts of the Life in Ruins podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network, he created a and I think he did this as part of his PhD. He created a series on the APN called Sight Bites. And there's only been one season, so to speak, of Sight Bites. But he recorded a five episode series with five different guests all about Chaco Canyon. And it is just a complete end to end, like five hours, give or take about Chaco Canyon. And there hasn't been any more of that. And he hasn't done any more series of that. He wants to. And, and I would encourage others, you know, anyone listening to this that wants to do, you know, a short run series like that, we have the platform for it. Now that is on all the different podcasting services, but those episodes can also just be placed 
you know, on a website, for example, where people are coming to that website to look for information about a topic. This is just one other way to do that. It's like I always say with advertising too, right? Like maybe our audience isn't on TikTok. Maybe our audience isn't on whatever the newest social media thing is, but there are some people there that would benefit from hearing this information. So why not put ourselves out there for that, for that handful of people if it's, if it's low cost to you, right? So that's what I say on public outreach is yes, to do as many things as you possibly can, because you're going to hit different segments of the population with each one of those things. No one thing is going to be perfect for everybody. They're all going to find value in the little things that you do. I think that's exactly it, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm exploring specific tools and, and forms of outreach. And I mean, You've hit the nail on the head that I think a lot of public heritage, public archaeology folks are maybe shy or even feared of talking about, right? Like no individual can do it all, but we are missing audiences when we don't do, I think, specific things. And Mm -hmm. again, this is kind of like a fascinating opportunity for experimentation. Yeah. If you're in a situation, I'm, you know, I'm speaking to listeners, but I'm also speaking to myself. I'm thinking out loud. You know, if you're in a an area, whether that's a research area or a geographic area or a location or whatever, and you want to do this sort of work, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of social media outreach like Twitter, and you're writing a bunch of tweets and tweet streams or or whatever. I'm mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm on all well, not much social media. So I'm clearly not good at that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that 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 ethos of experimentation, I think, is fascinating because any we're all surrounded by by these stories, you know, and I mean, I think the best heritage, the best archaeology is always narrative driven. And that's what I'm trying to do in yeah. my classes is get students to think about constructing narratives. Now, I'm building that around, you know, let's create a, a video or a presentation mm-hmm. or, you know, I, and in some ways that's kind of an old fashioned view of public outreach and digital heritage. And that's fine. You know, I'm old, so that's okay. But I think the, the podcast, I think, you know, and this is where as an educator, somebody who tries to like tear apart to the degree possible, the hierarchy of the classroom, you know, this is the sort of thing, I mean, talking to you, thinking out loud about this, this is the sort of thing that I very much look forward to bringing up with the students like yeah you know pick an option video podcast Mm -hmm. whatever what other options exist that i'm not i don't know create a bunch of tiktoks (laughs) i'm not on tiktok (laughs) because i don't you know i mean i don't want to be spied on but i guess that's all social media so it doesn't matter but (laughs) but right you know i don't even know uh in fact many of us probably don't even know what the next big thing is maybe nobody does right now but the last thing i want to be is closed off to the next big thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in in relation to your just, you know, fun, fun comment about being spied on with TikTok, you're totally right. There are some services out there that who knows, you know, where where the information is going or whatever. But I can't think kind of the way I look at it is these these people who are spying on and looking at my information, they're learning stuff about archaeology because that's what I'm posting. Like I'm not posting <laughs> about my it. personal life, right? <laughs> like yeah. let these let these spies in China, Russia, wherever they happen to be, just learn a little bit about archaeology. <laughs> What's the harm? It's like the old you know? joke of the, right, like your NSA handler. Hey Steve, I'm gonna talk about Kafka <laughs> exactly. today. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know about that. Thanks. You know, Abs- absolutely. I, I know you can't respond, yeah. Steve, or 
you know, insert not American name. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I like that. I mean, obviously, I know I can't hide from the world. I mean, I'm an educator. My face is out there. You know, I mean, none of us sure. really can. And in some ways, it's it's it doesn't make sense to. I don't have anything to hide. I mean, until I do. But well, you know, this is this is your hockey stick moment too. This is your second appearance on the Archaeology Podcast Network, so it's only up from here. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally, the, finally, <laughs> the platform I've 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 longed for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this has been really great. I'm looking forward to having you on the next couple of episodes. Uh, I have no idea what we're going to talk about yet, but that's what keeps it interesting. So I know it's going to be fun, though. And I really hope that, man, just thinking about the the classes that you're teaching and the and the students that you're teaching, I would put this out to you and I'll put this out to any other educators that are listening we can put together something like the Site Bites channel, which I think is a, a really great opportunity for students to put something on there that they can then do something with, right? We have an embeddable player. Well, our platform is changing right now. We'll have an embeddable player coming back. And what that means is you can you can embed a, a player right on any website that somebody can listen to. You can definitely embed a link to the show using that website's built-in functionality and, and listen to it right on the site there. So it'd be a good addition to any project somebody's doing. But the APN is happy happy to help educate and produce and have a location to host that podcast. So not only can the student have a place to put that, that is no cost to them, but other people may have a chance to listen to it too, because we'll put it into our all shows feed at the same time, which currently gets uh, anywhere from 40 to 60,000 downloads a month. So that's a worldwide audience on that feed for that one particular show, even if the individual show doesn't have, you know, a ton of downloads. So it's a great way. Like I said, I put that out to you and put that out to any educator listening to this that wants their students to use podcasting as a platform, but doesn't really know where to start. And me and my my co-founder, Tristan, if you happen to be over in the UK, we're both willing to video conference into a classroom or something and uh, and talk to you guys about podcasting as well as a as a platform and and how to do it and and you know our successes with it. So, yeah. Well, I I love that and uh, challenge accepted. <laughs> indeed indeed all right well again thanks ed for coming on to the show and i look forward to the next couple of episodes while paul is out of the country and with that i think we will see everybody next week thanks a lot thanks thanks for listening to the architect podcast links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash archaeotech Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.